Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us on 3P Champions. I'm Rob Stoller in Philadelphia, talking with my buddy and partner. Yeah, Greg Stern here in Seattle. Today's guest is just, again, unlike anyone I've ever met, it's another guy that Greg introduced to me and we're introducing to you. Does not come from a sports background. His background is really eclectic. He's served in public office. He's created a very successful coffee company. Now he's got a foster care company that's also prominent. Just an amazing guy, kind of an anti-hero. I've never seen anyone boast less about himself, quite the opposite. He almost acts like things have happened to him by accident. He also happened to have been visiting with a student when uh, Kevin was 25, I think, at Columbine High School on the day of the attack. We talk a little bit about that. Kevin Parker is an incredible guy, and I think you'll find him so. Greg, what's your take? Yeah, you're right. Kevin's a very humble guy. If you didn't know who he was, you one of those guys you just walk right by, but it's got a fascinating story. Like some of these guys we have in our three Ps, he's, he's multifaceted, you know. He's really an educator, but he's been an author, professional speaker. He's an entrepreneurial, a very successful entrepreneur. He's a professor. He also started a foundation. So it's this guy that, I don't know, they burn the oil, but uh, they find uh, a way to help people through their passion and purpose. And he's definitely got a purpose. I found him to be just an amazing, humble guy with an extraordinary story who's just got the biggest servant mentality. He's just one of those guys. You wish everybody could be around a guy like that and just feed off of his just persona. He's just a humble guy who cares, who wants to help you. Incredibly modest. I mean, he's done world-changing things and acts like he doesn't know how it all happened. I think you're really going to enjoy Kevin's interview as we did. And we'll see you on the back end. Thanks for tuning in. And now we're pleased to present Kevin Parker. When people ask you what you do, Kevin, what do you tell them? Well, it kind of depends the environment. If I'm feeling bold that day, I might say I try and change lives. I might say I'm a purveyor of coffee. I, I might say I teach. That kind of It just kind of depends on the context. Well, I'm sure you teach. One other really broad question that I'm interested in is, give me five words you would use to describe yourself. I'd say bold, curious, empathy. I'd say hard work. I'd say grit. And I'd say experiment. We've talked a lot about empathy. The fact that there can never be enough, but there certainly seems to be a, a lacking in that. What does empathy mean to you? Deep, deep care about the people around you. How did that come to be as part of your nature? I don't know. I think when I was in office, I saw a different side of human nature that I didn't see before. Like I could be meeting with one meeting, like with Bill Gates Sr. And the next meeting, someone who has lost everything. And so I saw the extremes of life a lot. And um, I think as a result, I just learned that that old little cliche about not judging a book by its cover, but you can't know the pages until you read them. And I think a lot of my life, I have not read other people's pages. And I, I just think people carry a lot of pain. You were a witness to one of the most horrific events of our, our history. And unfortunately, kind of the first of what's become many school shootings, mm -hmm. Columbine, at the risk of asking you something you've probably been asked many, many times. 
How would you think that day impacted all of your days after that? I think living deliberately. I mean, cause I didn't know if I was going to make it out of the cafeteria. And I remember telling God, if I make it out, I'll live very deliberately and I'll live really big uh, for others. And, um, and so when I was under that table, there was a couple moments of silence, probably two, I forget what the FBI said. I think, I think it was two to four minutes. And that's a very long time when in between gunfire. And you just think about a lot. And I just, I thought I was going to lose my life that day. And, and I, I think there was something about that day that just really intensely focused me. And I've, and 20 years later, I'm just as focused. And I, I think that I was really wayward growing up. And when I graduated high school, I had a 1.8 GPA. I barely got out of high school. There was a high school counselor that believed in me that started talking about colleges with me. And, um, and then I, and then after, after college, I got into Whitworth, which Greg was a star basketball player at, but a couple of years ahead of me, but I was, um, I got into Whitworth on academic probation and literally I was told I was the lowest GPA ever admitted. I don't know if that's totally true or not, but I've been told that a few times enough to where the admissions department threw me a graduation party because they were so thrilled that I actually graduated <laughs> four years later. That's how good that school is. Right? They really did. They threw me a graduation party. Um, <laughs> And then I was on Young Life staff. So I go what staff? What life staff? Young Life. Young Life. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I had really strong mentors around me. One of them, which is on the other side of this door, just people who knew how to love people, who knew how to create vision, who knew how to just really develop people and raise money and stuff. And when I was, I was, I was at Columbine because I was meeting a kid for lunch, but I just, I just was very focused and and I felt like I got a second chance at life and not all the kids got out. I did get out. I was 25 at the time, but I got out. And, um, and I think that that focus now, I, I mean, I've not really ever processed this like this, but I, I guess that focus has never really left. I'm still really focused. Yeah. And I don't know any different. And people say, well, how are you so disciplined? And I'm like, I don't know if that's what it is. It's like, I, I believe in setting up systems and my life is on a system you can call it discipline, I suppose, but I call it more like focus and desire. And there's a certain way I want to live. And I've tried to set up life to where I have a better chance of living that. There's some kind of thread running through a number of these interviews where there was either a person or an event or something happened in everybody's life that informed the rest of their life. And it seems like, you know, when you were young or in high school, you were not that disciplined or focused. And then you met somebody who, I guess, made you believe you could be more than you might have thought you could be. So that was one, one person that I think clearly from everything I read that you wrote that impacted you profoundly. And then being at Columbine, uh, I can't imagine that that wouldn't be the most dramatic, wouldn't have the most dramatic impact on you. Another thing I'm curious about with people is what are your thoughts about things happening that are out of your control, the coincidence or destiny question? Why were you at, why were you at Columbine? Why did you meet that guy? What are yeah, you- I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer to why I was there. I mean, God, obviously I would say wanted me there, but I don't have an answer beyond that. But I, I'm more one writing that's been really meaningful 
to me as like Viktor Frankl's writings, his time in the Holocaust camps. And, and I really subscribe to what he says to where it's about finding meaning where we are and developing depth where we are. And that really resonates with me. And, and so I, I've spent less question, less time trying to answer why I was there, mm. but more time asking what's the meaning that I can take from it and move forward. What made you decide to run for office? I think part of that was an extension of Columbine. Part of that was growing up, I was dating a girl at another high school who was friends with the governor's daughter of Oregon. And so I'd been over to the governor's mansion. I'd met her dad. And I think that probably played a big role in it too. Although I didn't know it was so unique at the time, but um, looking back, it was really unique. And, um, and so I think meeting Governor Goldschmidt and knowing the family a little bit just really made me think, oh, wow, I guess anybody can do this job. And, um, and then Columbine, I had an internship in college with a member, former member of Congress who was running for governor, uh, Denny Smith. That really impacted me. Um, a couple people on the campaign said, hey, we think you'll be back someday, but as a candidate. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. And I was 20 years old at the time. I kept the, um, when I left to go back to school, they offered me a full-time job. I had a full-time job, but they offered me to st extend it into the, um, into the academic year. And they said they would transfer me to Willamette and that was Denny's alma mater. And they said, that's probably not a problem. We can probably work that out pretty easily. And I opted and I, I thought about it. Then I decided to st um, stay at Whitworth, but I guess they threw me a going away party too. And when they threw me a going away party, I wasn't old enough to drink. Some of them were having drinks and I had a, something that was non-alcoholic. I don't know what it was, but I kept the bottle cap and, um, and I kept it in my pocket all these years, all through my campaigns. And I was like this, I remember they told me someday I would return as the candidate. And those days where I felt like failures, anytime I had a debate, that bottle cap was in my pocket. And then it sat on the, my legislative desk for all these, for all the years yeah. I was there. And to this day, now it sits on my desk in my Whitworth office, but I always remember that moment and I've always carried that bottle cap. And so I don't know why I just, I don't know. I got a question for you, Kevin. I've always admired you. This is before I really knew you, but I remember when you were running for office, how hard you worked on the yeah. corners, knocking on doors. And like, yeah. I'm a, I'm a passion guy. I believe it. If you put passion into whatever you do, you'll get good results over time. And I just see that in you, but then your yeah. leadership. So I heard about it then and I see it now, especially with your employees. And it just fascinates me how good you are. But when you wrote that book that we did, it was adaptive leadership, right? That yeah. you were focused on there. What is yeah. your philosophy now of leadership? I know you teach it and stuff, but what is your philosophy, personal philosophy of leadership? That there are one is that, um, boy, that's a big question. Um, I feel like it's incumbent upon us. I, I would subscribe to what Greenleaf writes about his definition. And, and I'm not going to just skirt it by going to his definition, but I'll bring it full circle. Do they, comma, while being served, become healthier, wiser, freer, more autonomous, and they themselves more likely to become servants? And so I think part of my philosophy is we give away what we have to those around us. And so literally right before this call, I was on a Zoom call with some of our um um, employees where we do a finance class together and it's a five six weeks long class and it's just about the fundamentals of of getting your money together and it's probably the most popular class we offer here because lives change in it they they start saving one two three four hundred dollars a month and they save and they buy homes and stuff like that so I, I think that's my philosophy that we give away to those around us 
um, and we do something with our lives. And when I make that comment, I think about Columbine, but also like the tools would be like the adaptive leadership tools. I like those tools a lot. And I still really like those tools. I think this is what students will say I teach and my employees. I'd say my philosophy, the interior dictates the exterior. I say that all the time to my employees, to students. And then I would say, we grow others, they will grow our organizations. Hmm. And there's a difference between training an employee and developing a person. If we develop the person, we'll get the good employee. Maybe not as quickly, but we'll get it. But if we train the employee, we may not get the person. That's my philosophy. I love that. I know you've been uh, eminently successful with your coffee business. And Greg gave me some background on the, the, the way you enact that philosophy with your employees, that you treat them as important. And I know you're a nurturing guy. And in fact, shortly before we came on, uh, Greg sent me a link and I, I went to it on your, your foster care organization. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that and how it came to be and what you wanted to achieve. Thanks, Rob. About Seven years ago-ish, I was at an event. I was, I was in office at the time, and I had a friend, Greg, you would know, Molly Allen. She was having an event for her organization called Safety Net, and it was a hot July day, and I was really in a piss-off mood, and I didn't want to go. It was, it was one of those Spokane days where it, where it approaches 100 degrees, and it had been a long day. This was an evening event. It just sounded awful to go to one more event. But I said, it's Molly, so I'm going to go. And so I go to the event. And I love, I love Safety Net and Molly, by the way. I had nothing to do with that. It was just I was tired. And then there was a former foster kid that spoke named Josie. And Josie gave an amazing talk about what it was like growing up as a foster kid. And she had some really hard stories. And I was just really moved by it. And so Carrie and I were sitting near the back. And then we made our way to the front. I said, we got to go talk to her. And we made our way to the front and I said, um, Josie, hey, my name's Kevin, blah, blah, blah. My wife, Carrie, I, I just want you to know that was probably the single most moving, impactful speech I've ever heard. And I've gotten to hear presidents speak and people like that, but no one spoke like I heard Josie. And I was like, that's just really powerful. And then the program was still going on. And Josie said, hey, sit at my table. Um, and I sat down and there's all these foster kids there. There's like seven other foster kids. And so we're talking during the event and everything. And I finally said, hey, if I buy you all dinner, would you all go out to dinner with me? And you can pick the place. And I just, will you tell me your story? And so they said, sure. And I said, you get to pick the place. And so I put one of the foster kids in charge. I said, your job is to call me and tell me where you want to go and what day you want to go and we'll work it out. And they picked clinker daggers, like a smart choice, right? They didn't pick McDonald's. They picked us. I was like, oh, crap. It was like a $400 bill. And um, so my wife and I take seven or eight of these foster kids um, to clinker daggers. And they just tell me their story one by And it was it was powerful. It's like, whoo. And then um, afterwards, I was like, hey, I love hanging out with you guys. Would you guys ever want to like come over to our house and maybe we'll do dinner? If I cook you dinner once a week, would y'all show up? And they're like, yeah. And so they, some, not all of them, but half of them probably started showing up every week or every, I think it was every week or every other week started showing up at my house and we cooked them dinner and we just hung out. Then Josie had been in the community college system for a while 
but she was aging out because of the Pell Grant. She couldn't go back the next fall. Or yeah, she was aging out, but she'd been in this community college system, I think for three or four years. And we take her to Whitworth, walk around Whitworth and said, what would it look like if you went to school here? And she said, a kid like me can never go to a school at a place like this. And we said, but what if you could? And she goes, I can't, but what if? She goes, I don't have the money. And so we lined her up with financial aid representative. And so Josie has these talks. She, we write her letters of recommendation. We call the school. She gets into Whitworth and she's doing fantastic. And then she comes to me and she goes, I need to talk with you and Carrie. And she says, I have to drop out. And we're like, what? You've had a year and a half and you're killing it. You're doing great. She goes, I have to drop out. My Pell Grant ran out and now I don't have enough money to move on and I've got to drop out. And we're like, well, how much money is it a month? And she goes, oh, it's 500. I think it was like, it's $518 a month or 500 bucks. And I said, okay, how, where are you living right now? And how much are you paying in rent? And she goes, oh, I'm living here and I pay $505 in rent or something. And I said, mm -hmm. okay, Jesse, move in with Carrie and I until you finish college. That'll save you that money. You can stay in school. You can graduate. That's going to serve you really well. And so she ends up doing it. All that being said, that's what started Embrace Washington. Because then I started thinking, okay, we helped one kid. How do we help more? And is there a way to do it? And, um, and so that birthed Embrace Washington. I actually found a picture just on Facebook that popped up over the weekend of the very first ever Embrace Washington meeting that was on, that was happened to be photographed. I think my aide photographed it. And there's seven of us sitting around a little fireplace. And today our budget is more than 400,000. I was just meeting with our executive director at 9 a.m. this morning. Um, we've got, you know, two other staffers. Um, we help a ton of foster kids. Um, we're flipping the narrative to we're working with churches and we're recruiting foster parents. And it all started hearing from Josie. I did a video about a guy from around here, Upper Darby. He served in World War II, then in Korea, and then he forced, and then he forced them to allow him to go lead in Vietnam. He had five Purple Hearts, and he had every medal except the Congressional Medal of Honor. And I was kind of hired by some of his underlings to support the effort to get him that medal. And he was also a motorcycle cop in Upper Darby. And he also created the Upper Darby Boxing Gym. He was the Marine Corps boxing coach, Golden Gloves. But I was sure that all of it, every bit of it, stemmed from the fact that he was raised in like 12 different foster homes. He wow. just went from home to home. And I have no question that he spent the rest of his life trying in every way and in every moment to make sure no other kid feels un uncared for or unloved. And I, I have to believe that somewhere inside you, Columbine has affected your desire to help kids. Yeah, I don't know, Rob. I don't know if I can. That's probably true to a degree. Hey, Kevin, I got a question for you. So I always try to look at myself and other people and see what would, what would Greg think? What would he do? Where's the pain? How can I help? But I always want to know when I see a kid, whether happy, go lucky, tough circumstances, what was their child like? What were their parents like? Did they have two people in the home? Mm. Was there any abuse? Did they have inspiring, you know, father and mother? 
I want to know where that foundation started with you as a kid before you're getting a 1.7. What was your childhood like? How were you kind of taught? First of all, it's a 1.8. You underestimated me. <laughs> okay, I apologize. Um, I had a great, I had a great family. Um, great parents. Um, my dad sold insurance and did fairly well at that. Um, I remember seeing him struggle financially when he started his own company about my freshman year of high school. But I had a really fun childhood. I, I don't have a hard case childhood. I have just yeah. the opposite. I had great friends many of which I still keep in touch with the ones that I played basketball and baseball with. We're still, a few of us are still really tight and I love those friendships. And Greg, I know you have some of those too, because I see them on your Facebook and, but yeah, I had a great childhood. I just was a party kid. I just was yeah. a slacker. Best times at Ridgemont High for you, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's More or less. It's More. Macaulay Parker. <laughs> More or less. You've, you've seen tough times. You've seen, you're helping kids who are in tough times. Uh, what what kind of message do you, other than the message uh, that, that I love you and I care about you, and I guess you're helping them develop in terms of their understanding of how the world works and money and all of that, but what's the overriding message you try to impart to these kids? First of all, like the game of life is not about being perfect. That's impossible. And, and that's a faulty standard. I said, but it is about being consistent. And I said, and consistent leaves room for those bad days. And it leaves room for when we get off course. And then I talked about an airplane and how an airplane is off course 98, 99% of the time, but it constantly readjusts. And I said, that's, that's us. We're constantly readjusting. The main thing is you got to know where you're going. And as long as you have a goal and a vision, you can readjust all day long and you can still get there. And so I said, give yourself grace, but don't forget to push yourself. Because if you don't push yourself, you're never going to fully realize what you're fully capable of. So th that that kind of stuff, I say. Mm. I like the airplane analogy. I think it's great. How did Harvard become a reality for you? Because of my 1.8. <laughs> when I was when I had my 1.8, um, my my last my last day of of junior year of high school, I was throwing the big keg party for for like the whole school. The principal sent out a voicemail. I think it'd be illegal today. Said, if your child's hanging out with Kevin Parker or Pat Kuchis, we believe they're throwing out a, a big party with alcohol. And it was just unbelievable, right? And then the last night of, of summer before my senior year, we I went to Sprague High School in Salem and it sat on a street called Kubler. And Kubler went like this. And the school sat right here on the hill. So if the hill was going up like this, Sprague, my high school was right here. And then for 20 years, people had written in huge, like we're talking 20 feet by 20 feet their year, like 92, 78, everything. And so me and my friends are doing that. It's our turn to do it. And so I organize it. We put a big 92 on it. We get caught by the cops. But I tell the cops, we're just, I totally lied to them. I tell them we're just covering it up. All we have is black paint. Well, then what happens is they buy the story and they were so moved by it. They called my principal and woke up my principal and said, I just want you to know about this kid in your high school named Kevin Parker, who really cares about the community. And my principal was like, what? And so then I get chewed out by the principal the next day because we finished when the cops left, we put 92 on there. And then my high school counselor calls me in and she goes, Kevin, this is just like, you're already in trouble. You've, we, are, we are 10 minutes into the school year. And she said, Kevin, we've got to talk about college. And I was like, what? And she said, where do you want to go? And I was like, okay, Margaret, 
I like you. You're great. I'll play this game. And I said, there's three schools I'm interested in. USC, because they're a football team. Yale and Harvard, right? I can't say that today with a straight face. And then she gets a brochure. She spends two and a half hours with me. And then after those two and a half hours, she says, listen, it's not that you can't go to any of these schools. It's just that you're not going next year. She said, but it doesn't mean you can't go. And she said, if you're serious about it, let's put together a plan and route you through the community college and then transfer in. You can do that. It's a windy road, but she goes, can you imagine what would happen if you actually did this? She goes, of everything you've done, Kevin, you put your energy to something like this and it's going to be amazing what happens in your life. I was like, really? And so I said, okay, well, how do you get an A then? And she goes, um, well, you have to do three things. You have to go to class. And I was like, every day? And she goes, every day. And I'm like, ugh. And then she goes, you have to study and then you have to pass the exams. And I was like, uh, that's, all, that's how I get an A. I got to do those three things. She goes, yes. I go, okay, I'll go get A's. And so that's what I did. I got all A's and a B twice. Um, and then I get into Whitworth. I didn't want to go to community college. I knew I'd flounder. I knew if I went to community college, I'm never getting out. And, um, and so I begged Whitworth to let me in, had letters of recommendation written, did uh, well enough on the SATs to where they wanted to know that I didn't cheat on them because it was so out of sync with my grades and everything. And then they finally said, okay, we believe that was a real test. And, and then I get in on academic probation and, um, well, let me tell this. I don't want to sideline, but I want to tell this part of the story just really quick. So I, my, my senior year, I'm trying to get into Whitworth. And so I quit throwing parties. I quit through in the keggers every Friday night. I started to study. I'm involved with Young Life. My classmates are all very confused, including my parents. Late into spring of my senior year, a guy comes up to me at this church I'm going to, and he goes, hey, Kevin, I, I know your story. I know you're doing like this unbelievable turnaround and I would like to help. And I knew his daughter, his daughter was a friend of a girl that I was dating. And, and he said, I want to help. He goes, do you have any idea what I do for a living? And I'm like, no, I've, I've hardly ever spoken with him. I go, what do you do? And he, and he said, well, I'm the Dean of Admissions at Willamette University in Salem, which is where I live. And he goes, I can help you prep for your interview and all this. And so he set up four or five meetings where I went interviewed, I drove to Willamette, I walked into his office like I'd never met him before. He put, he pretended he was Whitworth and asked all these questions. And then we'd rehash the interview. Say this, say this, don't do this, go this way. This is how you answer this. And it was just amazing the effort he poured into me. And then I graduate high school, not knowing where I'm going. It's summer. I'm still doing these mock interviews while all my friends out know where they're going and plan for the summer. And then I get to Whitworth, my big day comes. And I, I get to the dean's office and I walk in. And the dean said, um, Kevin, it's really good to meet you in person. I've, I've, I'm so intrigued. I'm excited for this interview. This is unusual, um, at really every step, but this is going to be interesting. And he said, but I'm and I'm standing in his doorway. And he said, I'm so curious, though. Where else did you apply? I said, well, nowhere. Well, because at a 1.8, you don't apply anywhere else. Right? No one's going to let you in. And, and he said, you didn't apply anywhere else? And I'm thinking, where would I be applying? And, and I said, no. And, and he said, not even to the community college? And I said, no. I said, I want to go here. And he said, and Ken goes, I don't know if this is one of the most inspiring things I've heard or if this is like one of the most ludicrous things I've heard. He goes, but come into my office. Let's spend a few minutes together and I'll let you know which one it is. And I walk into his office 
and he starts telling me a story about alcoholism and how he overcame it. And these people came into his lives. And in all honesty, I'm 10% engaged in this. I mean, all I'm thinking about is, okay, then he's going to ask me this and I got to go here. And then I'm going to bring up this point. I'm going to talk about this. So he's talking, but I'm like in my own world trying to figure out what question he's going to ask me. And, and then all I can think about is this guy ever going to quit talking? Good Lord. And then after 45 minutes, Ken goes, Kevin, what I'm trying to say is, and I'm thinking, I have no clue anything that you just said. And he goes, what I'm trying to say is sometimes in life we get second chances, like the story I just told you. And I'm thinking, I wish I would have heard that story because it sounds like it might have been interesting. And he said, Kevin, so sometimes in life we get second chances, like someone gave me. And today I find myself in that situation. And I'm giving you a second chance today. And he said, so welcome to the Whitworth class of 1996. He never asked one question of me. And then I, I couldn't get out of that office fast enough because I wanted to go, go home, get on the plane because I didn't want him to change his mind, right? And so I get up to leave and he goes, Kevin, right before you walked in, I got a really interesting phone call from a guy in Salem, Oregon named Jim Sumner, who's the Dean of Admissions at Willamette. And he told me he's been interviewing you all summer and prepping for this interview. And he said, he also told me if I didn't admit you, we were fools and Willamette was prepared to admit you. So I had no choice but to take a chance on you. Today. And then that's how I got about my high school counselor. When she said, where do you want to go to school? Harvard never left me. And then I opened up the paper one day when we were living in Bend, Oregon, and met in this county commissioner who got admitted into Harvard. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That guy's like a dimwit. That guy got in? And I'm like, and then it refueled all these conversations with Margaret, my high school counselor. And I'm like, well, if he got in, I can get in. And then I started the process. And then um, one night in class, it was in, a, it was in one of their exec programs. And, and I don't think I'd get in today. It's much harder to get into today. And the, and the, the, the professor, Marty Linsky, the patriarch of adaptive leadership, is going around the circle and asking everyone why they're in the classroom. And the lady next, and I'm listening to everyone and I'm trying to say, what do I say that's impressive? And then um, the lady next to me says, oh, I'm so-and-so, I'm taking leave from the CIA. And, and she sounds really impressive. And I'm a, I've got nothing on my resume to even become close to matching that. And then Marty says to her, she goes, so do you think you're like, do you, do you think you're worthy to be here? And she goes, well, I do work for the CIA. And she said, and Marty, and that set Marty off. And Marty's like, so you're telling me you think you're one of the greatest minds in the world. And they get in this banter right in front of me when I'm going next. And I'm just like watching this story. I'm like, oh my gosh. And then I'm like, what am I going to say? And Marty's crucifying. And I could, you know, picture him hoisting her on the cross and then hoisting her. And he was just demolishing her. And he said, I read all your papers. And, and he goes, but I want to know, do you think you're one of the greatest minds in the world? And she wouldn't answer the question. And finally, Marty said, let me answer it for you to solve this mystery. And he said, the answer is no. You're not even close to being one of the greatest minds in the world. In fact, I find it a little bit of a miracle you've been admitted into this school. And then she's practically in tears and Marty doesn't care. And then he goes, uh, Mr. Parker, tell us why you're in this program. And, um, and I panicked and I was like, Bleh. and I said, I don't know. I threw cake parties all through high school. I had a 1.8 GPA. I had a high school counselor who, who asked me where I wanted to go to school. I said this in jest to try and make her happy. And I don't know. All I know 
is I was throwing parties and somehow next thing I know, I find myself on the college track. And I think somehow that conversation led me to applying here. And I can't believe I even got into this place, right? It was just like the worst thing somebody could say, right? And then Marty has this way of just staring at you and like looking into your soul, like Indiana Jones, like ripping out the heart, right? And Marty says, um, he just, so I quit throwing up, right? And Marty just stares at me and it felt like five minutes. It was probably 30 seconds, but he just stares at me with his arms crossed. And he goes, Mr. Parker, did, did I hear you correctly? Did you talk about keg parties and a 1.8 GPA? Is that what I heard you say? And I was like, oh my gosh, did I really say all that? He goes, you said all of that. And I was like, oh my gosh, I said, I don't know. I said, do you want me to leave? And he said, no, no, no. He goes, he goes, but, but 1.8, he said, what were you doing? And I had, at this point, it's all on the table. So I was just gave him one of these, right? <laughs> and then, and then uh, Marty goes, okay. He said, so I've got a student here who went to the CIA who thinks she's one of the greatest minds in the world, but clearly she's not, that's been resolved. And then I've got a kid over here who said he had a 1.8 GPA <laughs> and doesn't understand how he ended up here. And this is my class. <laughs> and he goes, uh, he goes, okay, Mr. Parker, I can work with you because you're humble and you're real. I can work with you. And then he looked at the other woman. He goes, you, I cannot work with because you're too arrogant. Either you got to quit thinking so highly of yourself or go find yourself another program. But Mr. Parker, I can work with you because you're real. And, and he said, so welcome to Harvard University. And then, and then one day after class, he grabbed my arm as I was walking out and he goes, 1.8, I've got to hear these stories. And then, so we had breakfast together and I tell him all these stories about the keg parties, getting in trouble by the police. And, and at this point, there's, there's nothing to lose for me. I mean, I've already let the cat out of the bag. And then he invited me back to teach years later in 2013. And I'm teaching that class with him and, um, and it was all because of a 1.8 in a high school counselor. Well, you kind of took the Costanza approach. <laughs> you, know, you went opposite. Um, I live with my mother. I have no job. You know. Hey, Kevin, I think you have a little Ferris Bueller syndrome. And, and yeah, when I look back at, you know, our lives yeah. sometimes are disjointed. Like maybe yours was trying to figure out your path like mine was. Another characteristic that, that is common to a lot of the guys we've spoken with is humility. And that guy recognized it and i think it's a another disappearing trait and something that is to me couldn't be more attractive i don't need to hear anybody tell me how great they are you can show me but i don't need you to tell me but somebody who is that honest that's character so i would go for character over cia experience any day of the week and you were probably too modest to use to call yourself modest uh, as one of your characteristics, you got bold and curious and grit. I think all of those, I don't know where curious came in. When did you become curious? I don't know. I just, I just am. I just like to read. I read my first book, my senior year of high school, um, Seven Habits of uh, Highly Successful People. Stephen Covey. First, yeah, Covey. And that book still is... Um, it's still in my college lineup. I've been teaching from it now for 10 years, but I don't know. I just, I am, I am curious about a lot of things and I, and I like my curiosity. I think it's important. Is it the grit that made you pursue these lofty goals, even though you were starting at, you know, the, the bottom? <laughs> I, uh, 
Yeah, I, I have, I have never, I was never the best athlete. I was never the best student. I was never the best at anything I did, but I did know that I, uh, the, that I could work harder than other people. And I still believe that. Well, I'm sure that's part of the lesson you tell a lot of young people. To, yeah, that's true. It's a great lesson. I always feel like, one, you have to have experiential knowledge before you teach somebody else because intellectually you can hear it and understand all you want, but it's different for other people. But until you embody that yourself, you can't really help well. But when do you feel like you came into your role where you're like, I know who I am and now I'm self-confident because I know what I stand for. Nothing's going to take me off my track. For me, that's when it kicked in when I finally took ownership of who I really am and it wasn't kind of waving in the wind when people you know, pressured me or whatever. But I think most people have to come to terms with who they are and have that self-esteem of confidence. Do you feel that same way? And if so, when do you start, where were in your path? Where did you feel that? I don't know if I'm fully there yet, Greg. I, I think I'm still walking that path, but I, I can tell you when I, I felt like when I, when I was in the legislature, there was a moment where I was starting to work in the budget and I found a loophole that was being misused by um, some financial institutions. And so I went to, my side of the aisle and said, hey, this thing is costing the state a lot of money and it's not being used the way it was set up. And, he, and I said, I think I should try and close it. And, and my, my leader had said, minority leader said, uh, that's a pretty big deal. You better be pretty sure what you're doing. And, and I said, I think, it's, I think it's right. And so I did some more research and worked with staff. And then I let it out to the paper and it made some front page on a couple parts of the state, but not positive. And then the whole institution internally turned against me. No one on my side of the aisle wanted to touch it because it was going to be labeled as a tax increase. And then everyone who was on the bill co-sponsored it. Most of them, a lot of them took their names off. And so it was just me really and two other guys from the other side of the aisle. And then some of the financial institutions turned against me. And I really felt lonely in the legislature and the minority leader had said, listen, this is very complicated stuff. And he said, if you're really positive that you're right, then you can use my office. We are going to be on the floor for the next three days voting. His office was right off the floor and said, you can use my office. And I will tell every member that when you send a note to them to come see you in my office and you can have 15 to 45 minutes with every member individually. And if you can convince them, then we will run the bill. And so I did it. And I met with every single member. And after one-on-one -on -one conversations, almost all of them came on board. Not all, but 90% came on board. We ran the bill. We got it passed. But I was internally, um, it wasn't really overly popular externally. It wasn't really overpopular internally. But it was where I really learned that part of me is a rebel too. And I, a part of me is I'm comfortable going against the tide. And although I did feel lonely, although a lot of people turned on us in politics everything's temporary anyway so if they turn on you temporarily i knew someday they wouldn't be but i lost most most acquaintances temporarily but then when we got it passed everything was okay and and mm -hmm. came out on the other end that also happened with a police bill i wanted to pass a bill saying the police couldn't lie and that would and this was more complicated than that too this was a bill where it was really popular externally really unpopular internally. And this was the year after the financial institutions bill. And the minority leader called me in one day and said, can we just go a year without you picking like major controversial legislation? But on that bill, 
every single person took their name off the bill sheet and said, I don't want anything to do with this. And the, the deputy leader said, Parker, um, I think you should withdraw this. But if you don't, I'll sign on with you because everyone's deserted you, but I'll stand with you if you really want to move forward. And I go, I want to move forward with it. And so we moved forward and it was so unpopular. I, I mean, once again, I'm the pariah inside the Capitol temporarily. And that one never did pass. It just got really complicated. But those two instances, I feel like I'm still really growing. I feel like I still have a lot more growth, but I feel like I'm growing. But when I look back at those moments, those taught me resolve as well as my time starting the business and everything like that. But I learned, uh, that's what that's what Marty talks about in adaptive leadership a lot. I learned what it was like to stay put and absorb stress and absorb challenge and just absorb it and stay strong. And so I think that's where I learned to hold on when the waves are coming over the bow of the boat, but not yeah. to go underneath. You're obviously a smart and thoughtful guy. So you had thought about it before you said, this is what should happen. And people who were against it and making you feel like a pariah, they were just emotionally against it because it wouldn't benefit them somehow. But you had reason on your side. And I think that's pretty powerful. How come you got out of politics? Uh, eight years was a long time. I just felt like I was replaceable inside the Capitol. I loved it. It was a great experience. I loved most every year. There were two years that were really hard. I did not like, um, and I was just ready to go. But I was walking one night late after a budget meeting, I was walking into a Trader Joe's for dinner. And I saw a father and a little, like probably a four-year-old kid walking out. It was 8.30 at night. I'm in Olympia. My family's in Spokane. And I remember thinking, what am I doing? My kids are that age. Yeah. And I want to be holding their hands and they're growing up. And that moment was the moment I knew that I'd be leading politics. That's pretty powerful. Well, you know, it seems like in your, in your journey, you've had a lot of people go to bat for you. Yes. Why do you think that is? I don't know. That's a God thing for sure. I've always had a lot of people go to bat for me and I've never fully understood why, and, but I have very, I've very much benefited from people believing in me. Well, may, yeah, maybe it's a God thing, but I think it's more of a Kevin thing. I mean, I think it's both, but people just don't bend over backwards for anybody. Everybody saw something in you. You really have made a meteoric turnaround and that's powerful. That's a lesson that is translatable to everybody you teach. I don't think anybody can tell you they can't do something because you're here to tell them they can if they want to if they mission themselves to do it. So I, I'm, I'm sure you're a great teacher. One thing that I, I would have thought were I to have been in your situation, I'm still kind of fixated on it. I don't know why we can't change gun laws. I mean, we're still going through mass shootings. Was that ever a mission of yours as a legislator? Did you ever attempt to change minds on 18-year-olds being able to buy an AR-15? For me, I get I focus more on the communication and prevention side of it because most of those guns were obtained illegally. And so I was looking more for, okay, where do we make the difference here? And so when I was talking with the principal from Columbine, uh, Frank DeAngelis, he had talked to me about some stuff they'd put into Colorado. I tried to replicate a lot of that in the state of Washington, none of which was really ever passed into law, by the way. It was the legislation was killed, but one of it was setting up an anonymous tip line that Colorado and Frank DeAngelis will say this, it saved so many school shootings in that state, kids tipping off. 
They don't call 911 because they know they're traced. Yeah. Uh, but they will call an anonymous line that is authentically a really autonomous um, line um, and confidential and kids are tipping each other off. Other states have passed it. Washington state would not pass that law. I, I would imagine that was frustrating as hell. Yeah, that would have been my, my best piece of legislation. One of them. What's next for you, Kevin? Oh, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Fair enough. Anything else you'd like to say, Kevin? I don't think so. No. I felt like I talked too much. You didn't talk oh. too much. You're talking from from the heart and from experience and from reality. And that's kind of what's gotten you everywhere you are is being real. So I appreciate it. And uh, I really, I value your time. And Greg, thanks for introducing me to Kevin. And I hope we talk again, maybe meet you one of these days. And I'm proud of you and keep, keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, thank uh, you, it was really, that was really fun. Thanks for, thank you. It was cool. Thank you, man. Thanks so much for joining us today. I have to believe you found Kevin Parker humble and extraordinary. Again, unlike anyone I've met before. Greg, I can't thank you enough for introducing him to me and to 3P Champions. Hey, no problem, Rob. Kevin's just, you know, he fits the bill of the free piece, passion, purpose, and principle. And uh, I hope the listeners got as much out of it as we did. You know, anytime you hear about a guy that was in a shooting, that's something crazy. But Columbine was such a big deal back then. And I think that was a, a really poignant point to where it changed his vision of what he's going to do. But I always I thought that was fascinating beyond all the other stuff he has. Great talk, great conversation, and, a, and a, an amazing guy. The, probably the most self-deprecating guy I've ever spoken with. Has no trouble describing himself as an underachiever for much of his life and then became the most unassuming and modest overachiever that you can imagine. So thanks again for joining us. Hope you really enjoyed it as we did. And join us again next time for another 3P champion. Again, I won't tell you who, but I can tell you what. They're going to be incredible. Thanks so much, Greg, as always. Hey, Robo, thanks again. Thanks, everybody.